Let's hear the word of God. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show them these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt, and my signs, which I have done among them, that they may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the face of the earth, so that no one will be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought back again to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, We will go with our young ones and our old with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you, go, you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so the land was dark. And they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. So he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. 
thus far the word of God, a word that endures, a word that is faithful and true, given unto us for our correction, our instruction, our training in righteousness. Let us look to the Lord for his blessing on the preaching of his word. O Lord our God, we call upon you as we continue in our worship. Father, we are but the dust of the earth. You know our frame, for you have formed and fashioned us. And as your people, you you know the work uh, that you have begun in us and that you are completing against that day when the Lord shall gather us before him. Father, to the ends that you have appointed, that your word would go forth for the convicting of sinners, for the converting of the unrighteous, bringing them to Christ, but also for the building up of the saints, those whom believe those who are united to Christ by faith. Lord, would you bless your word to accomplish its purpose in each heart. Lord, open the ears of young and old alike. Lord, help us to see you in your mighty hand at work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We have already covered seven of the ten plagues with which God afflicted Egypt. I think you've been able to detect a pattern that is present in all the plagues. We've, we've talked about that pattern as we've made our way along. And I, I hope that you've been able to figure out that some of the important information, some of the lesson is contained in what is different in a particular plague, something that's not in the other one, something that stands out. I've drawn our attention to these in the course of preaching through Exodus thus far. At this point, I want to draw our attention to the main theme again, the main point, and remind us of a couple of other key lessons uh, that we have seen so far. The main theme of the book of Exodus is God, the Lord, making himself known. God, the Lord, the covenant faithful God of the Hebrews, their God, but the God of all creation is making himself known. He's making himself known, as we saw, first to Moses. Moses herding sheep in the wilderness of Midian, and God made himself known to this Moses. And then to Israel and Egypt almost at the same time. And then as the report of God's mighty works spread abroad, God was making himself known to the world. Remember how we mentioned last week, I believe it was, that Rahab and Jericho, many miles away, her people, even a generation later, had heard of these mighty deeds of God in the land of Egypt. And and even now, here we are, thousands of years later, sitting under the preaching of the word of God in Exodus, our covenant faithful God is making himself known to us. He's opening our eyes. He's giving us understanding of his nature, who he is, how he acts, that we would have lessons and instruction for ourselves, and even lessons and instructions about ourselves. The Lord has made it clear that he alone is God over all of creation. And indeed, he does all his holy will in all the world and with every man, woman, boy, and girl. And at the same time, God has been revealing the nature of sinful humanity, our nature. And we have seen the devastating effects of Adam's sin, as that sin nature is in each successive generation from Adam. What we have seen, and I think what really stands out, particularly as we consider Pharaoh, is the exceeding sinfulness of sin. 
as one of the Puritans' works is titled. And at the same time, God is revealing himself. He's really revealing himself in his ability to judge sinners and to direct sinners in the course of their lives and the affairs of men. What we've seen here is mankind is dead in sin. And the heart of man is as a stone. As we keep hearing about Pharaoh, he hardened his heart. He had a hard heart. That was his nature. And then of his own nature, he hardened his heart. And then in the course of time, God then hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's the nature of who we are. We have hard hearts. We're unwilling to seek God. We're unwilling to call upon his name. And we are unable. That is the very nature of the doctrine of depravity. At various points, I've sought to, to warn us of all the grave dangers of a hard heart, of resisting the word of God, and therefore further hardening our hearts. Now, Israel is made up of a host of men, women, and boys and girls. Children, the age of you children, are in that host of Israel. But it made comment along the way that the children of Israel uh, that are slaves under, under Pharaoh in Egypt, they really aren't any different than the people of Egypt. They also descended from Adam, and they have hard, sinful hearts. We will see that more fully as we move on into Exodus, once the Exodus has taken place particularly. It's against this background that the grace of God is displayed. This story, this narrative that we are watching unfold manifests the grace of God. So easy for us to think of Egypt and, and particularly Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the hard-hearted one, to think of him. But they're all hard-hearted people in this story. Even Moses once had a hard heart. And it's by the grace of God that he now has a heart of flesh. Because the covenant faithful Lord, faithful to his covenant, as Ezekiel 36 says, has given him a new heart. And so this Lord, this covenant faithful Lord, has come to rescue his people for his glory. God is a God of grace. We, we take up the Ten Commandments week by week. And that preface reminds us that, that the context that those commandments are given is in the context of grace. He's brought his people out of bondage, out of the house of slavery. He's brought them to the mountain of God, and there he meets with them. He's rescued them. God, the gracious God. Each week we are reminded that we too are sinners. We also need to be rescued from sin. Against the background of man's sin, it is there that the Lord Jesus Christ stands out in stark contrast. The beauty of Christ the graciousness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, the mercy that God has shown us in his Son, that he has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. He has displayed, God has displayed his love and his power to save. You think about it. Why should a holy God stoop to save such wretches as we are? That's what John Newton marveled over in that familiar song of Amazing grace. 
Why should God stoop to save such wretches? Why would God send his only begotten son into a world of sinners coming to save unwilling and unworthy sinners? Well, the answer is because God so loved the world. It was God's will. It was his purpose. He displayed his love in Christ. And God showed forth the brilliance of his glory. Even in this account, as we make our way through the book of Exodus, God is showing the brilliance of his glory. Not only his power to destroy, which the plagues display, but his power to save and his power to deliver even his people. We see the glory of God displayed in his love for his people. We use five main headings this morning. The Lord explains the reasons for the plagues. The Lord warns Pharaoh again. And we'll see Pharaoh seek to negotiate with Moses. Ultimately, he wants to. He's negotiating with God, though he doesn't recognize this God of the Hebrews. So he negotiates with Moses. And then we'll see the Lord send the invasion of the locusts. And then that familiar pattern at the end of the plagues as they've come, Pharaoh's response, his fake repentance, and then his retraction of his repentance. Well, let's begin then with the Lord explains the reasons, his reasons for the plagues. This passage opens as it has seven times before. Each plague cycle begins with God calling Moses. Notice the language. Now the Lord said to Moses, That's how each of the sections on each of the plagues begin. The Lord said to Moses. And then we find him saying, go go into Pharaoh. And then at the end of it is to tell him to let my people go, that they may serve me. That's the pattern. But notice this one's interrupted. There's something inserted in the middle of this. Now the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. God's already told Moses that he's doing this. We dealt with that a week ago. And the hearts of his servants, that's new information. Not only has he hardened Pharaoh's heart, he's hardened the hearts of his servants. Why? God explains himself to Moses that I may show these signs of mine before him. God gives in these statements three reasons why he is doing what he is doing. The first is God's telling Moses up front at the start of the plague, even before the plague is announced. Moses doesn't know what's coming. Second, God adds that he he, um, also is hardened, Pharaoh's hardened his servants, and then he tells Moses, the three reasons why he has done this. And the first one is that the Lord will display his power over Pharaoh. Remember, children, how we've heard that Pharaoh believes he's like God, that he has sovereignty, that he can do all his holy will, the unholy will, that he can do whatever he will in his land. The people have been taught to believe that, and no one can stay to Pharaoh, stop, go no further. No one can take Pharaoh's hand and hold it back. That's what Pharaoh believes. And God is teaching Pharaoh otherwise. He is displaying his power before Pharaoh and over Pharaoh. God is displaying to Egypt that their gods that they worship, that they rely upon, are rather idols. That is, they're just imaginations of men. They've been fabricated or painted or crafted or put together by mere men. And and the, the idols that they serve are powerless. God alone is powerful. 
second thing that the Lord tells us in verse 2 is so that this generation, the children of Israel, the Hebrews are in the land, that this generation will be able to tell their sons and their sons' sons. Do you understand that, children? God is saying they're seeing these mighty deeds so that they can tell their children and their grandchildren. That's another reason that God is doing this. These mighty things that I've done. Indeed, literally, the, the language is how I dealt harshly with Egypt. The verb even is interesting here. It carries a sense of mockery in the form that it is used in the Hebrew. A sense of mockery. God saying, if we, we could understand this way, and indeed some of the old commentators uh, on this passage says, uh, we can understand that God is saying, how I have made a toy of Egypt. You hear the mockery in there? What is Egypt? One of our elders likes to remind us, and I'm glad that he does, that the nations are but a drop in the bucket before God. as nothing more than dust on the scales to be considered of no account. And here's this Pharaoh who thinks he is the ruler. And God is telling his purposes to Moses that the, the people are seeing as his people but understand that Egypt is but a toy in God's hands. Mighty Egypt is no match for the one true God. This nation is in God's hand to do as he will. This is similar to the language that David pens in Psalm 2 when he tells us how the nations are plotting together and seeking to overthrow God. I love this psalm. I bring it to us often for us to sing that we would remember in our day even though we look at it this way, children and adults alike, the nations are but a toy in God's hand. They, they are of no account. He can do all his holy will with them. He can deal with them harshly. He can deal with them graciously. As David says, these nations say, let us break their bonds. Speaking of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us break their bonds and pieces and cast away their cords from us. Hear this, children. How God responds. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. You hear the mockery? The Lord shall hold them in derision. They are no comp before the mighty God of all creation. In Exodus 12, 24, after, or right before the, the plague of the death angel comes, God is telling the Israelites um, what they're to do. Moses is giving them instruction of what's going to take place. And then he says, you're to explain to your children when you have this annual feast recounting and remembering the Passover, you're to tell it to your children what it means. Psalm 78, I mentioned this um, a couple weeks ago, that Psalm 78 sings and celebrates. It opens with the, this truth, this principle of fathers telling their children who would tell their children who tell their children. It's as though four generations are in view there. And the psalm then goes on to recount the Exodus, God's mighty deeds. Psalm 145 also would have the people of the church, God's people, you, the people of God, telling your children and your children's children and your children's children's children if you should live to see them the mighty deeds of God, to tell them the mighty things that God has done in you and for you, that you would celebrate them. So God says, I've hardened Pharaoh and his people so that you would see these deeds. My harshness and my good graciousness to you and tell it 
to the next generations. The third reason we find in the passage, also in verse 2, is so that Israel would know that it was the Lord who performed these plagues. We mentioned this several plagues back, that God wants the people, his people, to understand it's not Moses. It's not Moses' great power. It's not Moses who persuades Pharaoh, uh, that Moses is some great orator. Remember, Moses said, Lord, I, I'm, I, I have a sloppy speech. I have a, a thick lip, and I can't communicate well. And God would have all to know that what's happening is his doing. He is the one who has triumphed over Egypt. You remember back earlier that when Moses came from Midian, we were told that the Lord has visited them. This is a time that he's come. He's looked upon them in their afflictions. In these plagues, God wants Israel to know, I am your covenant faithful Lord, and I am with you. You remember how when they go out, that God represents himself in the pillar of cloud by day, in the pillar of fire by night that goes with him throughout 40 years of wandering, again manifesting his presence with his people throughout all of that. Can we do that today? Let us listen to this account and learn. Let us rejoice. God is the Lord, and the Lord Jesus Christ has defeated sin, death, and the grave, and he has delivered his people from the destruction of hell, and that he is the only redeemer for sinners. So let us sing and celebrate these things to our children. This is why our children need to be with us in worship. This is why you children should be attentive in worship, learning to worship right alongside your parents as you learn to read, following along, singing as you can. And there's so many things that your children can participate in as you remember the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer, the doxology, the Gloria Pontra. You can take these things up, learning from your parents, and begin to celebrate our great God. Well, the second thing we see after this introduction is God sends Moses to Pharaoh to warn him. He is to go with that same command that you may know that I am the Lord. Let my people go. So then Moses, verse 3, and Aaron came in to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. This is the same thing that Moses has said over and over again. This is now the eighth time. Actually, there's one before that as Moses appeared for him before the plagues when he has Aaron cast down his rod and and turns into a serpent and it swallows up the magician's rod. This is now the ninth time they've come before Moses with a demand of God, let my people go. Do you notice something? God hasn't told Moses what the next plague is going to be. In the previous accounts, he has, other than the ones that are unannounced. They just, Moses goes out at God's command. But God has been sent, and there's no account that God has said, this is what you tell uh, tell Pharaoh has happened. It's as he gets before Pharaoh. This time, there's some added information. Do you hear that in verse 3? Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? God is addressing the very matter of Pharaoh's heart. You have a hard heart. You are proud and arrogant. You presume yourself to be a sovereign. 
You, you've taught your people that. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? For I am to be worshipped. And then God states his demand again, let my people go. This that is inserted is a direct rebuke to Pharaoh. It is, in a sense, putting his finger on his key issue, his pride. You think about how long Pharaoh has humbled the Hebrews under his whip. But now God's whip is at Pharaoh's back, yea, even upon his land. How long, Pharaoh, will you resist? Let my people go. And then you know what comes next? Children, you've probably had this. You've been in trouble. You've done something. Your mom or your dad says, do this or else. It kind of gets you to pay attention. Something else is coming. If I don't do this, something's going to happen. Do this or else. So that's what God says to Pharaoh through Moses. Notice the language. It's verse 4. Let my people go that they may serve me or else. If you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. God's going to judge them again. And then God goes on to give Moses the words to tell Pharaoh just how bad it's going to be. Locusts are an insect, children. Have you seen grasshoppers? We see grasshoppers. You can catch them. Well, locusts are like a little bit oversized grasshoppers. Uh, they tend to be, dependent on their species, they can be brown, but they eat green things voraciously. They just gobble up and consume all that is green. Some of you might have read Laura Ingalls Wilder's book and how out of the prairie they'd build a house and they had planted a wheat crop and there was expectation that they'd be able to pay for the house the wheat crop and the locusts came and the Lord describes how they just walked across the land and when they came to the house they walked up the walls of the house in the window down the wall across the floor up the wall and out the other window and just eating anything that was green in their path and the sound of them at night day and night as they munched and crunched and as they watched their hope that was in the field of wheat vanish Look at this language here. Or else if you refuse to let my people go tomorrow, I will bring locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail, and they shall eat eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses. I think Laura knew something about that. They will fill your houses the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. So here we know this plague did not happen to the Hebrews in the land of Goshen. God's very specific. This is the Egyptians, the Egyptians' houses, that portion of the land where the Egyptians dwell. But there's something similar. Remember how the frogs, the plague of the frogs, they were in their houses, they were in their beds, they were in their kneading troughs. The same idea. These locusts are going to be absolutely everywhere. God goes so far, it's interesting that he uses this language that um, the Hebrew idiom, the eye of the land, it will literally cover the eye of the land. That is all that an eye could see. So that if you look, if you look out on the land, all that you can see with your eye is covered with locusts. It's really hard to imagine, isn't it? 
And if we saw it today, it would be most alarming. You would probably respond, this is like the plagues of Egypt. These locusts have come. But notice what God refers to. He talks about the plague of hail that had just come before. Again, unprecedented. We talked about this last week, a thunderstorm of such proportions. It was so large, covered the whole land of Egypt. And it was so powerful that it kept carrying the moisture up so that the ice balls got bigger and bigger. And then finally they fell and they destroyed everything. They shredded the leaves and the limbs and just destroyed the crops except for the ones that were little and in the early stages. And now God is saying everything that was left after that, the locusts are going to eat. Everything's going to be destroyed. What will be left behind? Pharaoh, at this point, if he had any sense left in him, his heart wasn't so hard, he would say, this is not good. You know, at least if, if the things are left as they are, the, the other things that were little green shoots can come up, and you know, there's going to be a harvest from that. And now I'm hearing how I'm going to send, God's going to send these locusts. You've got to remember, Pharaoh believes he's sovereign. That's why he used to have his magicians stand up to, to Moses and repeat what he was doing, but no more. But notice what God says to Pharaoh. In all your days, your father's fathers, since the beginning of the time of Egypt, again, we said that a couple weeks ago, or I think last week, that's 1,800 years. 1,800 years. I can't comprehend what's that like to think of that many years. That's almost from where we're at right now, almost back to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. What? A plague. Now, see, Egypt would get locusts. There were times where they would come, but they would always come up from the south. It was just a natural occurrence. They would come in, and they would wreak havoc on some of the crops, but God say, no, this time, everything. That's how severe it's going to be. And notice what happens then. And then Moses and Aaron just walk out. Then awake for response. Remember what God has told Moses? I have hardened Pharaoh's heart, that I may display my glory. And so they walk out. Children, do you think this should have been enough to change Pharaoh's mind? Well, if he was reasonable, yes. But you see, that's the problem with sin. It darkens our ability. It makes it so we can't be reasonable. We are not rational. You think about that, how many times we have sinned, and afterwards we go, what was I thinking? Well, because of sin, we weren't thinking. We were not reasonable. And that's what Pharaoh's doing. He's not thinking. He's so much in the grip of sin. His heart is desperately wicked, hard to the things of God. Well, then Pharaoh seeks to negotiate with Moses. Pharaoh, verse 7, Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? We haven't heard from these guys in a while. Pharaoh's got his officials. They're around him in his, in his court. He's got his attendants and his uh, nobility and so forth. Probably his magicians, although they've been silenced. These people around, but they, they've, they've, they've had enough. Uh, they see the reality. They're like saying, Pharaoh, what is wrong with you? How long shall this man be a snare to us? Now, there's something of an insult in that. They don't say, how long shall Moses be a snare? It's like, just kind of often, this man. There's no respect in what they say for who he is, but nonetheless, they recognize what's happening. And what's their counsel to Pharaoh? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Go ahead and let the men go. 
And then look what they add. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? So you can imagine these are the officials of Pharaoh. Uh, they have responsibilities in the government of the land. And as the plagues have been folding, they've been getting the reports. Pharaoh's servants, officials have been coming in. They've been sending messages to this capital city. And these officials of Pharaoh are hearing about the devastation. Probably every moment it seems that somebody else would come from some other place saying, I cannot believe what has happened, only to find out that there's other people saying, I can't believe what has happened. The land is destroyed. And these men have a picture. Pharaoh is living in his comfort. He's in his palace. He thinks he's a god. The people revere him as a god. But his officials are saying, do you not know? Egypt is destroyed. And they've just heard right along with Pharaoh of yet more destruction that is coming. They're concerned about it. They say, well, just let the men go. That's their ample. That's their simple answer. Just let them go. Obviously, these men have not been paying attention. Or these men have been paying attention. But Pharaoh has not. What do you think Pharaoh did, children, when his reporter, his officials reported him? He actually listened to them. He listened to his officials. Their simple solution, let the men go, that they may go and serve me. And so in verse 8, what do we read? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. The language is there. They were brought. They were compelled. They weren't saying, hey, guys, you know, come back in here. No, they were brought. It's as though the officials took hold of them and brought. They were forcibly returned before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says to them, what does he say? Go serve the Lord your God. This is the same commandment. The direct two commands, go serve. When the Hebrews, early on, remember the Hebrew foremans, they come before Pharaoh because they've had the straw taken away. And yet they're told, make brick, make as many as before. They come to Pharaoh with their appeal. And what does he say? He says, go work. He's the king. And he orders that way. And so he now orders Moses and Aaron concerning the children of Israel, go serve the Lord your God. And then he asks the ones, who are the ones that will go with you? It's real interesting in, in the language. It's, it's who and who. That's what he asks him. Who? He wants to know who will go, but it's who and who. That is to say, we might put it this way, just exactly who is going. Who, who do you intend to go? Moses has made it clear, but he wants to nail it down. And so look how Moses answered him. Here's this negotiation. Moses makes it clear. We will go. With our young and old, that's just to say everybody in between, not just the young and the old, and the middle-aged people stay, but everybody, even the young and the old, will go. Our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, that is all our livestock, we will go. Why? Because we must hold a feast to the Lord, a feast to the Lord our God. Feast is this word for religious festivals. It's what will be used going on for the Passover. It was a feast. When we're in the book of John, we heard of the three feasts, the festival of lights and and of the booths, as well as the Passover. We must hold a feast to the Lord our God. And Moses has made it clear, and he's not lying. We don't know what the Lord will require of us, so we need to take our animals with us. Pharaoh's answer to Moses at this point when you know, his idea, he's going to listen to his counsel and say, let the men go. All right, go serve. Men go. Moses is saying, nope, we're all going. And then Pharaoh answers him. He's very sarcastic. 
He says, in a sense, he says, be careful. Trouble is in store for you. Verse 10, he says, the Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Does that sound like a threat? The Lord better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you, or trouble is in store for you. This is an illusion. After the death angel goes to the land, if Pharaoh tells them to go, and he, in a sense, drives them out of the land, and then he wakes up and realizes, what have I done? All our slave labor is gone. I've, I've let them go. And then he sends his army out after them. Here's the idea of trouble is in store. And we're told at that point in chapter 14, there's 600 choice chariots and then other chariots in addition to the army. Pharaoh, listening to the advice of his men, let the men go. I'll keep the women and children as a hostage so that the men assuredly will come back and I will still have my slaves working for me. How does it end up? Pharaoh's sarcasm, his, his threat, his response is then not so. You who are our men, go. You who are men and serve the Lord. There's his command again, more specific. For that is what you desire. Is it? Is that what they desire? Moses all along said, we're going. And he says, no, I'll tell you what. Pharaoh's hard heart is evidence here. That's what you desire. I'm telling you what you desire. And then what does he do? And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So we see in, in this Pharaoh's hardness. He thinks he's sovereign because he has them brought back in and then he drives them out and he tells them this is how it's going to go down. But what did, what did Moses tell him when this all began? There's a plague of locusts coming if you do not comply. Or else, as the command was. So negotiations are over. Moses and Aaron have left. Children, who do you think has won? Well, if you're Pharaoh, you think you've won. You've given your command. You're not letting them go, but you can take the men can go. He thinks he's won. He's had his way. But God will have the last word on this matter. Let's think about that in our own situation. It is a dangerous thing for us as sinners to think that we can negotiate with God. That we puny men... Boys and girls, men and women could negotiate with God. Remember, but we are men and we are on the earth. God is in heaven. Remember the prayer that, I remember a prayer that I was taught when I was a children. Maybe some of you were. We used to, as children, pray this at mealtimes. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hand, we all are fed. So as little children, we were taught to understand we're fed by God. Our food is on our plate because God has made us so. He's called the sun to shine and the rain to fall and the earth to give an increase so there's something to eat. This simple prayer teaches us that we are completely dependent upon God for everything. Moments ago, we prayed the words that Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Again, acknowledging our dependence upon the God of heaven. Sinner, don't you ever think that you are equal with God. Don't be so foolish and hard-hearted as Pharaoh to think you can negotiate with God. The fact is, your heart beats, not because you will it, indeed you don't, but because God decrees it 
you are alive because God decrees that you're alive. The righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust, God decrees it. Therefore, humble yourself before the Lord. And he didn't cry out to him that he would save you from yourself, from your sin, even through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only hope for sinners. Well, fourthly, we see that the Lord then sends the invasion of the locusts. The Lord has already commanded Moses when he came out of the was ready to command Moses when he came out of the king's court. Verse 11, they were driven away then. They're, out, they're driven out from the presence of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand. This is going to be with a rod in it. Moses understands it, and it's more specific in just a moment. Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt. Moses' work is done. God says, stretch it out. He does, and then he waits on the Lord. Moses understands God is a God, and he is not. And so then what happens? He stretches out his rod over the land, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. It's the same language when they're at the Red Sea. God sent an east wind on the land all that day and all that night, and he parted those waters and dried out the way for them to cross over. This time, though, on that east wind, what do we find? When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. It's interesting. Locusts are, in, in a sense, you might say they're lazy. What it is, they're, they're single-minded in how they expend their energy. They expend their energy eating. They don't make much effort to move around. They move around from one area to the other to get more to eat because the wind picks them up, and then they just carry. They follow along with the wind. Yes, they do fly, but they depend upon the wind to carry them from one place to another. And then whatever the wind dies out in their drop, they eat till the wind comes again. And so the east wind comes, and they come from the east, not from the south, and not as before, a number here or there, but enough to cover the land of Egypt. God has commanded it. Children, I want you to think about what we saw in John's gospel when the winds were, then the seas were troubled, when the disciples were on the waters, and they were frightened. And what did Jesus do? He spoke. The winds and the waters says, peace, be still, and they obeyed. Why? Because Jesus is God, and he is doing the will of his Father, and God made it so. And so we see a God, Lord of the winds, sends locusts. And so then the locusts come, gnawing, biting, munching, crunching, eating every green thing they could find, anything that was left behind by the hail. And thus they left nothing for the people to eat. You cannot overstate the devastation of this plague. We've seen that with each of the plagues. It's just, it's horrific. The scale of it, the magnitude of it, is just, it's unimaginable for us. In verse 14 and 15, notice the language that follows. Then the locusts went out over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously, there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall they be after them. So it's like God said, your fathers, fathers have not seen anything like this. But not only get that, God sent this plague of locusts, and there's never been anything like it since. Praise God. Praise the Lord. 
happened. No land has experienced that. Notice verse 15, and they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened. And they ate every herb of the land and the fruit of all the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Locusts don't even, they don't just stop with the leaves. They'd eat buds and tender twigs. Some of them actually stripped the bark on certain trees. They ate everything that they could possibly eat. Notice the language we heard there, darken. This, uses, this word darken is used in several senses. Uh, it's used in the poetic language, like in the Psalms. Um, and some of the prophets, they speak in a poetic form. And there it in, usually indicates judgment. Now remember what we just heard. There's nothing green. Remember how it is at winter? It's all gray, brown, dark, dingy. There's a darkness in the winter months. It's also used as a metaphor. The devastation of the nation. The nation is darkened. Remember, Pharaoh's official says, don't you realize Egypt's destroyed? But it is also pointing to the next plague. What's the next plague? Darkness. Children, i got another question for you. Do you think this got Pharaoh's attention? Yes, it did. That's our next point. Pharaoh's response and his retraction. Pharaoh drove Moses and Aaron out of his presence the previous day. And when he did, he was angry and proud. Now he calls for them, verse 16, in haste. He calls them, summons them to come quickly. He's, he's been affected. Once more, this man who is supposed to be a god is forced to confess he has sinned. Look at the language. Calls for him and, and Moses and Aaron in haste. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, this is not the confession of a man who's repenting and believing on God. He's just saying, this is your God. I've offended your God. And that he thinks, okay, this God who's come of the Hebrews is causing a problem. He's your God. But nonetheless, what does he want? The real problem with this is Pharaoh has not really changed in his heart. He has a hard heart. He just wants the effects of his sin gone. He wants the consequence of his sin gone. He wants the locust gone. That's all he wants. And so he comes. He calls them. And notice in verse 17, Now therefore, please forgive. Notice how specific he is. He's not saying, forgive me. This is not like the sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me of all my sins. Cleanse me from my unrighteousness. Give me a new heart. Let Christ's record speak on my behalf. None of that. He says, forgive me this sin only this once. And then entreat, that is, pray the Lord your God, that he may take away from me this death only he's focused only on this moment he only wants to be relieved from the suffering of this moment he wants to escape the consequences of his sin this is the confession of a man who's been caught you ever do that children you get caught <laughs> the proverbial hand in the cookie jar no you can't have any cookies they're for a special event coming up and Nobody's in the kitchen, and you reach in, the lid comes off, and then boom, there's mom. Just how does she do that? There she is. You're caught with your hand in the cookie jar. Or with a frosting from the freshly frost cake on your finger. What are you doing? Well, it's not what it looks like. I'm sorry. Don't spank me. 
because you want to escape the consequences of what you've done. That's This is who Pharaoh is. He wants the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, to take away this death. Children, think about this the next time you've disobeyed and done a very naughty thing. That means that you will be punished. In that moment, are you sad? Are you just sad and confessing that you were bad because you want to escape the punishment? That's not a change of heart. That's what we see with Pharaoh. There's no conversion with this king. And so Moses left the presence of the king. Moses doesn't say anything. He just goes out from the king and he prays to the Lord and the Lord does something. Notice something at this point. Moses never prays in the presence of the Egyptians. He always leaves and goes out and prays to the Lord God. Well, then we're told what was the response. Verse 18, he went from Pharaoh and he treated the Lord. That is, he prayed. Then the Lord turned a very strong west wing. Again, children, listen to this. The wind's been from the east. And then God turned the wind in that moment to a very strong west wind. And it picked up the locusts and carried them away. God altered the direction of the wind right then. And then the locusts were carried away into the Red Sea, where the the word is the Sea of Rushes. It's the first time that it is used in the Scripture. This will be the same sea that Israel will cross. It will be the same sea that the Egyptians will come out to pursue the Israelites and will go into the open way in the water. And then they too, like the locusts, will be overwhelmed with the waters of the sea and destroyed. Notice the thoroughness of God. I love this, that this is written here. Then the Lord turned the very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. Notice, there remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. Can you imagine a strong west wind coming in and there would not be a single mosquito in all of Rhode Island? <laughs> That'd be pretty nice, right? Or, or no fleas or, or ticks or whatever. Just God is complete. He carries all of the locusts out of the land. God is sovereign. God is Lord over all creation. These things are happening because God has decreed them. God has not allowed them. That is not biblical. And I point that out because that is a very common language amongst evangelical Christians today. Something bad happens, like, let's say, the fires in Hawaii. Well, I guess God just allowed that. God decreed it. God is sovereign, so nothing comes to pass but what God has decreed. As we've seen, God decreed Pharaoh's heart to be hard. God hardened his heart. God is sovereign, that we should fear him. You see then, as we wrap up, how God is, God is uh, as, and hardening Pharaoh's heart as the passage closed. It's hard, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He hardens it more, and he would not let the children of Israel go. Same way all the other plagues have ended. Things are escalating. We've heard now how Pharaoh threatened Moses and God's people, beware, evil is ahead of you. And then how he drove Moses out of his presence. How his officials are telling him the land is destroyed. We might say of the first six plagues that we looked at, they were irksome, highly annoying, made life very difficult. But these last two, the hail and the locusts are absolutely destructive. 
things are escalating. Absolutely destructive. And remember what the last plague is. The death of the firstborn. Pharaoh's counselors were just unaware of how close disaster was. The people of Egypt do not understand how the world is ordered or who orders the world. They think Pharaoh orders, orders the world. They don't understand that it's differently, and God is displaying that. He's making himself known. For thousands of years, these people have thought that their gods and their king controlled their lives and everything about their lives, and then suddenly it's not true. And so it is today. We live in a land, and we live at a time where so many of the powerful and even ordinary people think that their lives are ordered by, what do you hear today? Karma, or the universe, or Mother Nature, or fate, God controls all the affairs of men. People in our day are living in darkness. They're trusting in their positions, their possessions, their power, their prestige. But before God Almighty, they are powerless. They have hearts of stone and they reject the very idea that God is, even though the heavens declare his glory, even though they're surrounded by the works of God in creation that speak of his invisible attributes and his great power. The locusts are used in the final book of, Re- uh, final book of the Bible, Revelation, to describe the torments that await those who remain in unbelief and reject the blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Revelation 9.3 we read, Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given the power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth. God's sovereign, locusts like grass. They were commanded not to harm the grass of this earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God upon their foreheads. And they were not, and they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. But my friends, even this torment of the wicked that's described in Revelation is nothing in comparison to what awaits the unbeliever in the great and terrible day of the Lord. Revelation 21 tells us that the cowardly, unbelieving, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their place in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is... The second death. Eight plagues. And God has displayed his ability to destroy Egypt. The wealth of Egypt. The sustenance of Egypt. God is able to destroy all who have hearts of stone. The God is the Lord. He's the God of the new covenant. The Lord. The God of the covenant. The faithful God of the Lord. And what is the new covenant? Ezekiel 36, I will take out of you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. It speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit. God can do this and maintain his holiness and justice because he has provided a redeemer, even the Lord Jesus Christ. So we heard earlier in the service, who lived a sinless life. He was obedient in all the things that we are not so that he has a perfect record of righteousness as the God man that that account, that record might be credited to our account. And then he suffered the wrath of God on the cross. 
judgment unlike the things that we hear in these plagues. The wrath of God, the just and holy God visiting judgment upon the unrighteous. Christ uh, Christ underwent that wrath for us because he was God's redeemer. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, who is the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. There is no other one like him but the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered for people with hearts of stone that God could give them hearts of flesh. If God makes himself known through the works here in the Exodus the time of the plagues, how much more has God made himself known through his son? Even as Jesus said, as we saw in John, I am doing the will of my father. I do what I see my father doing. I say what I hear my father saying. I have come to reveal the father to you. And then Jesus told his people, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. Would you know the father? Would you know God? It is through the Lord Jesus Christ and my faith in him alone. Amen. O Lord, our God, we do marvel at your great and mighty works. Father, we think of these plagues of old, and we see, even in our day, um, small examples with the mighty works, the tempests of the storm, whether it be tornadoes or hurricanes, or the violent eruptions, the convulsion of the earth as it cries out for the sons of God to be revealed whether it be in devastation of pandemics or or fires, Lord, you are reminding hard-hearted men you are God. And you are not to be trifled with. And even in concert with these things that are going on, your word is preached. Christ and him crucified is held forth. The only hope of glory is set before men that they would flee to Christ O God, in our midst, we pray for the men, women, and boys and girls who are apart from Christ, that you would draw them and bring them by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit. Make yourself known to sinners in our day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing at this time from the Psalter, the Maroon Book, Psalm 105. No, we're not singing out there because it's a different tune. We're singing 105D. It's on the back 